Anyway, it's good to see you guys this morning. We are going to continue with John today. Uh, if you're visiting with us, my name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here, and I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. And I uh, hope that you enjoy this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So last week, we kicked off this series in John, which we have kind of subtitled, Seeing Jesus, Finding Life. So John is, the Gospel of John is one of the four Gospels. This one's written by the beloved disciple, John, all right? So uh, there's some references to John the Baptist early on in John's Gospel. Uh, This is not written by John the Baptist. He's just talking about him, so let's not get that confused. But the Gospel of John was written about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John tells us in chapter 20 that he has chosen some stories, some works of Christ to tell, and that there are many other things which he did not write down, which is kind of neat to think about, right? But he says, I wrote these down for this purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. Amen, right? And so this is why we've decided to dive into John, and this is the purpose of the series, that we would all see Jesus and find life. How many of you think that's a good idea, right? And so no matter what your circumstance is today, no matter what is on your heart, what is on your mind today as you come into this place, what I know is that we can all use a fresh perspective on Jesus Christ. Amen? We all need Jesus to meet us in some way. And so that's going to look different for you than it does for me. It's going to look different for you than it does for your neighbor but we can all trust that Jesus will meet us uh, right here where we're at. And so let's just pray today that as we open up John 1, that we'll, we will see Jesus and find life. Amen? Father, thank You for today. Thank You for these people who love You, uh, who are here to hear Your Word, to worship You, to proclaim Your name together with one another. Uh, God, I just continue to thank You for this place, for these people. Uh, Lord, we ask now that our hearts be made fertile soil. Uh, Lord, that as we hear your word preached, as we hear your word read, that it will find home, it will find root in our hearts, and that it will bear fruit for the rest of our lives. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you today. Uh, Father, I just kind of feel the need to pray for um, just various circumstances, Lord, that are going on in people's lives, and, and some of which have affected Uh, their ability to be here today. Lord, I just want to lift them up to you and just ask that your grace be made sufficient in their life today. We thank you, Lord, that uh, there are many situations that are are represented here and those which are not, but we know that in all of those things you are at work, um, that your power, that your glory will be made known. And so, Father, we praise you for that. We just ask for that grace for our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I want to read you a story today about a guy who you may or may not have heard of. Um, and it just kind of starts like this. On Saturday of this past week, um, September 16th, a guy by the name of Nabil Qureshi, age 34, who was the author of a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, uh, entered into the joy of his master. Uh, Nabil died after a year-long battle with cancer, and this is his story, and I think it's good for us to hear today. Uh, 
Early in life, for Nabil, Islam was everything. And so this is his story. Nabil was born in California as a U.S. citizen to Pakistani immigrants. They fled religious persecution at the hands of fellow Muslims. His parents were devout members of the peaceful Ahmadi sect of Islam, which differs from Orthodox Islam on some minor doctrines, but agrees on the six major doctrines. Nabil's family was the most loving and tightly knit family that he knew, and it was entirely centered on Islam, which formed the framework and blueprint of his life. His mother taught him Urdu and Arabic before he learned English at the age of four. By the age of five, he had read the entire Quran in Arabic and had memorized many chapters. His parents also trained him in apologetics so that he would not only believe in Islam, but could defend it and refute it against other religions like Christianity. And then he encountered Jesus Christ. In August 2001, while he was a student at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, Nabil observed fellow student David Wood reading the Bible in his free time. Nabil regularly read the Quran, but it struck him as odd to see a Christian, a Christian reading the Bible on his own. Nabil challenged David's belief in Christianity, beginning with the charge that the Bible had been corrupted over time. Wood aspired to be a Christian apologist, and the two young men formed a friendship and engaged in debate that lasted for several years. And working through David's arguments and examining the evidence for himself, Nabil eventually became convinced of the general reliability of the New Testament. He next raised the obje objection that Jesus never claimed to be God. After being shown this was untrue, Nabil challenged David that Jesus had never died on the cross. Again, by being willing to investigate the evidence, Nabil changed his mind. It was now two and a half years later, and Nabil raised the greatest stumbling block for accepting Christianity. How could one man die for another man's sins? And second, how could the one true God be a trinity? He was now reading the Bible and considering Christ's claims for himself. In return, his friend David began to challenge Nabil's confidence in the claims of Islam. Intellectually, Nabil held to Islam for several subjective reasons, like the kind of life that it produced. But objectively, the central claim was that Islam was true because Muhammad was a true prophet of God. But after studying primary sources and biographies, Nabil eventually concluded that he could not reasonably, uh, sorry, could not reasonably hold on to the idea that Muhammad is the greatest of prophets and history's most perfect man. From December 2004 to April 2005, Nabil experienced three vivid dreams that strongly suggested to him that Christianity uh, is true and that Christ should be followed. Later that year, he traveled to Washington, D.C., to Canada, and to England to search out knowledgeable Muslims who could answer the arguments against Islam that he had encountered. Uh, he says, I heard various replies running the gamut from terribly unconvincing to fairly innovative, and I encountered people that ranged from sincere to condescendingly caustic. At the end of my research, the arguments for and against Islam still hung in the balance, but one thing was abundantly clear. They were far from approaching the strength of the case for Christianity. Christ is all. 
Nabil described for Christianity Today his final conversion to Christ. While a medical student in the, uh, the while a medical student, and then he explained the effect it had on his whole world. Here is Nabil's testimony. He said, I began mourning the impact of the decision that I knew I had to make. On the first day of my second year of medical school, it became too much to bear. Yearning for comfort, comfort, I decided to skip school. Returning to my apartment, I placed the Quran and the Bible in front of me. I turned to the Quran, but there was no comfort there. For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my suffering, irrelevant to my life. It felt like a dead book, he says. He goes on to say, with nowhere left to go, I opened up the New Testament and started reading. Very quickly, I came to the passage that said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Electric, he says. The words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I could not put the Bible down. I began reading fervently, reaching Matthew 10.37, which taught me that I must love God more than my own mother and father. But Jesus, I said, accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. The next verses spoke to me saying, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He goes on to say, Jesus was being very blunt. For Muslims, the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. He says, I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life that day. A few days later, the two people I loved most in the world were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made. This is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. But Jesus is the God of reversal and redemption. He redeemed sinners to life by his death, and he redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for salvation. He redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for my every moment, bending my heart toward him. It was there in my pain that I knew him intimately. He reached me through investigations, dreams, and visions, and called me to prayer in my suffering. It was there that I found Jesus. To follow him is worth giving up everything. Amen. What a beautiful story, right? And I, I bring it up because I think Nabil's friend, David Wood, probably had no idea the fruit that his labor would produce. Amen? And so, and, and so still, with humble, gospel-centered proclamation, his words eventually led Nabil to Jesus Christ. It would have been easy for David to write Nabil off as a Muslim and just say, this is a lost cause. I'm not going to engage in, this, in these conversations with you. We're not going to talk about these things. But instead, David humbled himself in the way to be able to be receptive to what Nabil was saying and what he believed, and then he challenged it only after forming a friendship with him. And so I think that sometimes this idea of sharing Jesus with others can feel daunting. It's like standing at the foot of Everest sometimes, is it not? Your palms begin to sweat, your heart begins to beat real fast, and you just feel like, I don't know what to say. The words just won't come out of my mouth. And so I think that, like David would, John the Baptist has paved the way for others to see Jesus and find life through humble, gospel-centered proclamation. He has set an example for all of us to be able to share our faith with the lost. And so I want to read 
uh, some of John the Baptist's story to you here in John chapter 1. So let me just read a few verses. We're going to start in uh, verse 19 here. It says, This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him. So you got to get this picture. John's out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing people. All right, this was a big deal to the Jews. This was a big deal to the priests and to the Levites that John would be out baptizing people and telling them to repent and uh, believe and be saved and be baptized. And so he says, uh, he, so the story goes on to say, these guys show up and they ask him, who are you? And he says, it says here, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then are you, they asked. Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Well, who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. We can tell, what can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent by the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? He says, I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, though, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Then it goes on to say in verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. He says, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him. So when John baptized Jesus sometime prior to this proclamation, uh, what happened was is a dove descended on Jesus, which was the Holy Spirit, And a voice of God spoke and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And and so this is John's testimony of that. He says that I knew that from that, um, he is the one who baptizes with, sorry, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God of God. And so in this, John the Baptist is proclaiming Christ with humility. I think that um, if we are to proclaim Jesus in today's age, we must do it first with humility. Follow the example of John the Baptist. We proclaim him with humility. So if you're taking notes, that's your first one. John the Baptist, though, was a great saint. He was not some lowly fellow. He was a great saint. Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew, he said, truly I say, among those born of women, how many know that's everybody, right? Among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. But here we have John full of humility, resisting this praise that the Jews were so ready to give him, right? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? He's like, no, I'm none of those things. And so... Uh, it's at that place of humility that, that um, salvation can be found. That truth uh, that, a lot, that 
sorry, that John the Baptist is proclaiming Christ in such humility makes his words so much larger to me. Amen? I mean, they just make them so much larger because he knows this. He was able to baptize Christ. He's apparently had spoken with God, and God had told him, the one whom you see the Spirit descend on like a dove uh, will be the one who comes after you to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, just a quick word on that. This is not a second baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the baptism in which you receive life. Ephesians 1 says that when you give your life to the Lord, when you place your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And and so though anybody could be baptized with water, uh, only people who believe in Christ have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and are true believers. Amen? And so... uh, That's kind of a side word on that. And so John says, I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Messiah. I am a voice. It's not the voice. He doesn't say, I'm the forerunner, right? That was prophesied about. He says, I am a voice, but there is one greater among you whom you do not know, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I want to lay this before us today. I think that when we confess, I am not the Messiah, That's the greatest act of humility that anyone can make. Amen? That's the greatest act of humility that anyone can can do. If we're ever to begin the act of proclaiming Jesus, then we must first proclaim that we're not Him. Amen? That, That I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who has come to save your soul. I don't have that power. I am simply a voice to tell you about what He's done in my life. Amen? And so it's at that place that salvation is found. I need the Messiah, and I know that I'm not the Messiah, so therefore I need the Messiah. I cannot measure up to God's standard, and but Jesus did, and so I'm trusting Him with my life. When we proclaim with humility, uh, when we proclaim Christ with humility, what we're saying is, is that He's the Savior of ourselves and that we couldn't save ourselves. He's the one who did what we could not do. Amen? I love what J.C. Ryle says here. He says, we have no true religion about us until we cast away our high thoughts and fill ourselves sinners. Amen? We have no true understanding of who we are in Christ until we cast away our high thoughts of ourselves and realize that we are sinners in need of grace. There's no truer statement made about that, I promise. But it shouldn't stop at salvation. Proclaiming that we're not the Messiah should be the state of our hearts each day. And so for unbelievers, we have the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is Him, that we're not Him. But for the rest of us, for believers, we have this idea of proclaiming Him each day of our life, that we're not Him. And this gives you the ability then to be honest in your evaluation of yourself, as Romans 12 says, not thinking more of yourselves than you ought to. Amen? It's a lesson in humility to realize that I can't save myself. It's a lesson in humility to realize that I need a Savior. Amen? And that I'm not Him and that you're not Him. It's an exercise in humility to realize that if unless I place my faith in Christ Jesus, I'm destined for hell. It's an exercise in humility. It it brings our heart low before the Lord. And it places Him in His right place and us in our correct place. 
This gives you the ability then to be honest. And so it allows you to lay down the need for self-preservation. It allows you the ability to lay down the idea of wearing a mask before people, uh, to posture yourself before others as something that you're not. It's totally freeing for your life and your mind and your heart and your confidence and your insecurities and all of those things to say that I am not the Messiah. Amen? It frees us in a way that we've never been free before. It frees our hearts in a way that we've never known before. I am not the Messiah shows the world that I need the Messiah and I'm not Him. This is a place that we must all seek to get to as believers in Christ. James 4, 6 says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, Some translations say, but gives more grace to the humble. That there's this exceeding grace for those who are humble before Him, but the proud He resists. Amen? A humble heart is ready then to receive God's grace. Ralph says of this, he says, the greatest saints of God in every age of the church have always been people of John the Baptist's spirit, clothed with humility. Amen. May we be clothed with humility. Luke 14, 11, Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is true exaltation. Anything that you're able to posture and produce for yourself is not true exaltation. You will be humbled one day. I just pray that it's not too late. Amen? And so, but we know that anyone who will humble themselves now become like a servant to many, just as Christ. Take on that persona of Christ for your life. Anyone who does that will be truly exalted. A true exaltation. And it's that true exaltation that really matters. I, I again love, Ryle says a lot of good things. I love what Ryle says about this. He says, never shall we feel the need of humility so deeply as when we lie on our deathbeds and as when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our whole lives will then appear a long catalog of imperfections, ourselves nothing, and Christ all. Amen. At the end of your life, all that you'll begin, all that you'll be able to see as you look back across your life is your own imperfections, the way that you didn't measure up, but you'll be able to see Christ as everything. Amen. And so that's my hope for us. When we proclaim him with humility, we can then proclaim him with gospel centrality. Forgive the wordiness of that, uh, please. When we proclaim him with humility, we can proclaim him with Gospel centrality. Maybe gospel clarity would be a better way to say it. It is not until you have become less in your own eyes and Christ has become great in your own eyes and in your heart that you will be able to proclaim the gospel first. Once humility is found through the work of Christ for you, you'll want to preach no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Once you realize what Christ has done in you and for you through His life, death, and resurrection, that, that changes you, that transforms you, that takes your old life, your dead life, and makes it a new life, an alive life. Amen? Where you were spiritually dead before, you are now spiritually alive. And when you realize that it was Christ who made you spiritually alive, 
you understand that I did nothing to earn this or deserve this, and so my boasting shall be in Christ alone. My boasting is in His name alone. I want to promote Him. He is great. I am not. His name is to be made much of. Mine is not. His is what matters. Mine does not. And so let me spend the rest of my life proclaiming the name of Christ. Let me spend the rest of my life preaching Jesus in a way that ministers to my my family, my children, my wife, my brothers and sisters, my uh, co-workers, my friends. Let me be a light for Christ because of what He's done in me. That's exactly what John is doing here in the text. As we read a moment ago, he stands and he says, as he sees Jesus coming, he says, there, or here, is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. Amen? He says, this is Him. So what does John's message mean? What does this look like? Well, to be the Lamb of God means that Christ was the sacrifice for sin. Amen? This doesn't mean that He's just meek and gentle like a sheep is, though He is that. That is part of His character. But it's not all of His character. The, the, the allusion to God being the Lamb, or to Jesus being the Lamb of God, is that He is that promised Lamb. He is that promised sacrifice. That in Christ, we have the promised offspring of Eve in Genesis chapter 3 when we see the curse on the serpent. And God tells the serpent, from her offspring will come one who will crush your head. Right after Adam and Eve have sinned, God is promising to redeem humanity. And so in Christ, we have this lamb. In Christ, we have the promised lamb that Abraham told Isaac, the Lord will provide the ram. In Christ, we have this sacrifice. In Christ, we have the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system that took place morning and evening of every day. In Christ, we have this perfectly fulfilled. He is our promised Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. Ryle says then, he says, let us take heed that in all our thoughts of Christ, we first think of Him as John the Baptist here represents Him. Let us serve Him faithfully, as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death and as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year that we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all in His cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the rule of true Christian theology. We know nothing rightly about Christ until we until we see Him with John the Baptist's eyes and can rejoice in Him as the Lamb that was slain. Amen. Amen. Everything about life rests in this truth. Everything that you understand about Jesus must rest on the fact that He is the promised Lamb of God sent to take away the sin 
of the world. When we proclaim Christ with gospel centrality, we're proclaiming Him as the promised land. We're proclaiming His finished work. He takes away the sin of the world. Jesus didn't come only as a teacher with nice things to say. One of the most incredible things about unbelievers and what they miss is they'll read the words of Jesus Christ and they'll say, man, those are, those are really good teachings. I, I really like how charitable Christ was. I, I love the things he had to say. And so in their eyes, they're equating him to someone like Muhammad, to just another prophet, just another teacher, just another uh, religious leader. And what they're missing, what unbelievers miss is he is the promised son of of God, the one sent to take away their sin, and you can't recognize him as a good teacher and not acknowledge the truth of what he says about himself, that he is the Son of God sent to take away the sin of the world. Amen? And so it's easy for us to just say, man, I like the teachings of Christ, but deny his deity. You can't like the teaching of Christ and deny his deity. It doesn't work that way. He teaches that he is God. And that in him is true life. And so when we proclaim him with gospel centrality, this is what we're proclaiming. He's not just a teacher. He came to do what no one else could do. What money can't purchase, what learning can't achieve. He came to do what is necessary for true life. He came to take away your sin. To provide a way to eternal life. He died in your place with your sin on his shoulders, bearing God's wrath on himself, the loneliest place as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the feeling of all who will spend eternity in hell. It's it's separation from God. It's being under his wrath for eternity. And this is the truth that we must understand, that in Christ... He bore the weight of that so that we could have life and not death. So that we could be made whole and not continue in our brokenness. Jesus did this for you. God did this in sending His very own Son for you. Through this great work, He continues continues the work in those whom He saves. So salvation is certainly a great work. But we've talked about this a lot here. You don't get saved and then die. Sometimes that might be nice, right? Like, let me just get saved, now let me go to heaven and just spend eternity there, please. It's not the way it works. God takes you until your very last breath and is purging sin from your life. Ralph says he is daily taking it away, daily purging, daily cleansing, daily washing the souls of his people, daily granting and applying fresh supplies of mercy. Praise God he doesn't save us and just leave us like we are. He's daily conforming us to the image of Christ. Day by day he's taking us to where we, uh, you know, at, at initial salvation we have the life, we have the spirit of Christ in us, But even from there, we don't resemble Christ very well, do we? From there, there's still holiness to be pursued. There's still sin to be purged. There's still the old man which wants to creep back up and take me back into my old ways of living. 
And Christ has sent His Son. God has sent His Son, sorry, Christ, to save us. And then after saving us, when He goes to heaven, He sends His Holy Spirit to live in you, to purge sin from your life, to grow you up, to mature you into the likeness of Christ. Until one day, you get to spend eternity with Him. But every day, from the first proclamation of Christ, I am not the Messiah, but you are. Save me. Every day after that, God spends growing you up and maturing you, preparing you for that final day. Praise God that He does it. Amen? And so no matter your circumstance, no matter what you're going through today, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what things entice you and are pulling you, Christ is more than enough, and He's in you through His Holy Spirit. And He's helping you overcome, just as we'll read several, several, several months from now in John chapter 16, that I have overcome the world, says Jesus. So take heart. Be of good cheer. What's He saying? Rest in Me. Trust Me. Because everything that you need in life is found in Me. It's not found in anything else. I am true life. And so we surrender to Him. And then we daily continue surrendering in Him. Salvation should not be a one-time experience in that I proclaim Jesus and I never consider Him again. Salvation is the act of proclaiming Jesus that first initial time and then every day afterwards. And that as I'm proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, I am simultaneously saying, I'm not the Messiah. Thank you for saving me. Work these truths in me. Because the more I get to know my heart, the more I realize just how disgusting I am. Just how much I needed a Savior. Praise God that He does it for us. As an unbeliever, your first step, if you're an unbeliever in here, you're a skeptic, you're doubting, you're wondering, what is this all about? As an unbeliever, your first step is to receive Jesus. To look at Him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has died on the cross for you and has saved you if you'll receive Him as your Savior. If you'll trust Him as Lord. As a believer, your daily walk is to pursue holiness. How do we pursue holiness? Just a quick thing on this. This is a totally separate sermon for sure. But a quick thing on this, it looks like this. It means confessing my sin daily. Laying it before the Lord where I fall short. And then trusting that the Lord will do the work that only His Spirit can do in me. That He'll raise me up to new life. That He'll continue that work of purging we have the promise in 1 John that those who confess their sins to the Lord will be forgiven. That the Lord will remove unrighteousness from them. And so let us rest in this promise that He will cleanse you of your sin. He does it through the work of His Spirit which you've received in Christ Jesus. Trust Him to do what He does. Let's keep reading in our text today uh, and then we'll wrap this up. Verse 35, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples now. So John had his own followers, John the Baptist. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, 
the Lamb of God. So here he is again proclaiming Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John's disciples leave him and begin to follow Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. So these two disciples are standing with John the Baptist on the shore, and they're baptizing people. And they say, Look, there's the Son of God, the Lamb of God. And these two disciples leave John. They're like, all right, this is what you've been preparing us for. There he is. We're going to follow him. So the, the forerunner has made straight the path for these disciples, has he not? He's done exactly what he came to do. I think this is a beautiful testimony. So just through the faithful proclamation of God is coming, there's one who stands among us, these two disciples leave and they follow him. And they go and they stay with Jesus. And then if you'll notice, we don't, we don't know what happens with Jesus, but we know they come out the next day changed. Here's what it says in verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John. Now, just for reference, the other one was most likely John the Beloved. But John the Beloved, the writer of this gospel, never mentions himself. A another act of humility, right? Wouldn't it be nice to say, hey, I'm the Beloved Disciples. You, you should listen to what I have to say. I was closest to Jesus, but he doesn't do that. All right, so here we have Andrew and John were with John the Baptist early on saw Jesus, and then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his brother. So he, he leaves Jesus, he goes and finds his brother Simon, and he told him, we have found the Messiah. So we don't know what happened there, but we know that, that, uh, that he walks away saying, that's the Messiah. That's the Christ. That's him. I must go and tell my brother now so that he can come too. We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, him when he saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. Some translations say son of Jonah. Uh, you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And then the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. He walks up to Philip, hey, follow me, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, so this is a, a friend, I suppose, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. So he's saying, we found the one of which whom we've been studying our whole lives. The one that we've heard about our entire lives as Jews, we found him. This is him. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael asked him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see, Philip answered. So he's saying, we found him. You've got to come see this for yourself. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is really a compliment. He knows that Nathanael is coming as one who uh, is skeptical, but he's not trying to hide his skepticism. He's, and so Jesus knows his thoughts, he knows his heart, he knows what's going on. He says, here is one in whom there is no deceit. May we all approach Christ this way. Honest about where we feel, honest about the things we feel, honest about the things we hope. Amen? Let's approach Christ this way. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. 
He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Now this could be an, it's all conjecture to try to figure out what this means. Most likely, the fig tree was a place where Nathaniel would retreat to. Whatever this fig tree was, it was a place that he would retreat to and commune with God. Pray, worship, talk to God, those kinds of things. And so only God would have known about the fig tree. This would have been a place that only Nathaniel and God would have known about. And so for Jesus to say, before Philip went and got you, I saw you under the fig tree, this would mean something to Nathaniel. This would mean, Rabbi, Nathaniel said, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, and I missed this part, but he said, you will see greater things than this. So greater things than the works that Christ would do, the miracles that he would perform, is the taking of souls and making them alive. Saving people. Amen? And this would be the work that the disciples would get to witness. And so why do we proclaim him? Let's wrap up with this. So that others see him and find life. We proclaim Him humbly. We proclaim Him with Christ-centeredness, uh, with gospel-centeredness. And we do those things so that others see Jesus and find life. Through the faithful proclamation of Jesus over Himself, John's disciples leave Him to follow Christ, which leads to more disciples. These guys leave and they go and tell people about Jesus. The forerunner had certainly made straight the way for these other, others to follow Christ. I want you to know that it is only by exalting Christ that men and women are converted and saved. It is not by exalting the church. It is not by exalting programs. It's not by exalting preachers. It is by exalting Christ that hearts are moved and sinners turn to God. It is this message of here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that has arrested hearts for centuries. It's that truth that has drawn people to the Lord over centuries of time. If people are to be saved, they must be pointed directly to Jesus over and over again. We must be patient like David Wood was patient with Nabil and proclaiming Christ, answering questions, walking with them through friendship. If we ever hope to see fruit, certainly you can see converts saved immediately with the word of Christ, follow me. But sometimes it takes, uh, Christ is going to take you and use you to befriend someone and begin to tell them about Jesus Christ, tell them about himself over time. And in that, people will respond to the Lord. And so this isn't the work for preachers only, I'm sorry to say. This is the work for all disciples. It was the personal word from a brother that led Peter to Jesus. Also the personal word from Philip, which led Nathaniel to come and see Jesus. All of us who have received mercy ought to find a way to tell others about the work that God has done for us in Christ. There are many who will listen to your story of what God has done in your life that will not step foot in here and hear my sermon one Sunday. And so we must speak up. We must tell 
others about Jesus. J.C. Ryle is going to push us a little bit in that he says, surely, if we can find nothing to say to others about Jesus, we may well doubt whether we are savingly acquainted with him ourselves. That's a tough word, amen? That's a tough word. If we struggle to find anything to say to others about Jesus, we may well doubt that we know Jesus savingly ourselves. So let's proclaim Jesus so that others may see him and follow him also. Colossians 1.28, Paul gives the reason for the proclamation. He says, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It is through the humble, Christ-centered proclamation of the gospel that others see Jesus and find life. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray and pursue the Lord so that this message we proclaim would arrest the hearts of our listeners. And because we are not the Messiah, we must proclaim Him with bold confidence showing people their need for a Savior, just as John the Baptist prepared the way for, so that we'll continue to see Jesus and find life for ourselves as we're proclaiming Him, as we're diving into His Word, we're finding it ourselves. And as we find it ourselves, we'll be better equipped to lead others to do the same. Amen. So this is my prayer for you today. Would you stand to your feet this morning?